Well, if you would again uh, take out your Bible, let's turn to Genesis chapter 13. And we'll be reading verses 2 through 18. Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 2. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or, if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, and everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram removed his tent, and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Horeb. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, Father, now that you would grant to us attention, careful attention as the word is preached. Be with this your servant. We pray that as this word is explained and that we would understand it, help me to explain it well, to uh, help us to learn and grow. We pray that also for the, as, it, as the Word is applied, uh, that we may see and live by what You have called us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a, among Christians a strange phenomenon, and that is of the unattached, or maybe we can call the peripheral Christian. That is, a believer who resides on the edges of church life. Well, they may come and go to public worship at their own leisure. 
They aren't involved in the service or fellowship of body life. They aren't accountable to anyone, perhaps, but themselves. In some cases, they may even be consumers of spiritual things, attending conferences, reading books, listening to podcasts. But they're, they're uninvolved in the body of Christ. And the Christian faith becomes, for them, perhaps, a, a self-service program. And give and take as you please. And what I have termed an oddity is, for the individual believer, really a spiritual danger. Because left to ourselves alone, we may fall into a variety of errors. In fact, the assumption of the Scriptures is that believers would function within the community of the saints. That we will submit ourselves to those who are keeping watch over our souls. That we will obey our elders and submit to the Scriptures and those who lead and teach. The Church of Jesus Christ is not some kind of add-on benefit for the Christian life. Rather, it is the feature of how God is leading and blessing His people. So today we're looking at an example of two men. Two men who have chosen where to pitch their tent, as it were. One is like the modern-day peripheral Christian, having been blessed by God, but choosing to live on the edges of the faith, which will have an effect on placing, in effect, will place them into spiritual danger. The other abides with the Lord, worships the Lord, and experiences God's covenant goodness and faithfulness. And as the scriptures tell us, these things are given for our instruction. So now, so far as we've studied in Genesis, uh, we've been introduced to God's covenant of grace. Uh, that is to say, God's promise to rescue His people by a Redeemer. Uh, This occurs, in fact, quite quickly after the fall of man in chapter 3. But by Genesis chapter 12, we see the promises which were given to Abram of a land, a nation, and of blessings to all the families of the earth. These promises are are fulfilled in the only mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Through His death and resurrection, Christ has delivered us from darkness and transferred us into His kingdom. By grace, we've been saved through faith. And by faith, we're to walk in newness of life and in the community of believers as members of the household of faith. Now, this is the language of the Scriptures. We're to live in the Lord. We're to walk with the Lord. We're to abide with the Lord. Just as the children of Israel pitched their tent around the tabernacle during their wilderness wanderings, the Christian is to pitch his or her tent, as it were, around Christ, who is our tabernacle. We are to abide in Him. We are to abide with Him. For away from Him, we can do nothing. We saw this as we read John chapter 15. We're like branches that once removed... If we remove a branch from the vine, it cannot produce fruit. We need to abide with Christ, our Savior. And so today, as we look at this account of these two men, we see Abram, the man of faith, and also his nephew, Lot. Lot had chosen to live apart from God's promises for reasons which will become clear in a moment. And in some sense, we could see this as a cautionary tale. What happens when a person leaves the place of blessing, leaves the household of faith, and abides in the world, becoming one whose soul 
is tormented. And so let's begin by picking up the narrative in verse 2 of chapter 12. Now, if you've uh, been following along in this series, you may remember that Abram and Sarai, along with the servants and Lot, had spent some time down in Egypt. They had went to Egypt because of the severe famine which was in the land. Now, Egypt was a well-watered place. But you may remember Abram feared what might happen because of the beauty of his wife. And he was right to fear because the Pharaoh, in fact, notices her. And for a season of time, Sarai was taken from him. During this time in Egypt, however, Abram increased in wealth. He was greatly blessed. He was, became rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And so now as he travels north again, coming out of Egypt, it says he passed through the Geb, and he comes back to the place where all of it had begun in Canaan, the place where he had made an altar between Bethel and Ai. It was here, it says, that he called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram returns to the place where he had first pitched his tent in the land, and that place where he had made an altar. Now, there's maybe we could say this. This was like a reset for him. You know, a bit of a misadventure, as it were, in Egypt. But he had indeed came back greatly blessed from his time there. But now he's back into the land of promise. And so Abram hoped to revive sweet communion with his God in that place. Now, the text doesn't tell us one way or the other if the altar which he had built was still there. Nor does it say that he offered sacrifices. What it does say is that he called upon the name of the Lord. Which is to say this, Abram cried out in prayer and in worship. He returned to the land to worship the Lord. Now remember, Abram has struggled. He has struggled in his faith up to this point. He has struggled to trust God, to deliver him. He, he struggled in Egypt. But here he's returned again to a posture of faith. The very place that you and I must be as well. For we're, in this sense, we're like Abram, aren't we? Don't we struggle to trust God? Now notice too that Abram's newfound wealth doesn't distract him from worshiping God. It's not like he received all this wealth. He's like, great, now I don't have to worry about anything anymore. He's been blessed greatly and amazingly. In fact, he's very well aware that God is the one who's provided all of this for him. God is the one who had rescued him and Sarai and all that he had from the hand of Pharaoh. And on top of that, had increased what he had. He was well aware that it was from the hand of God. But it is actually that wealth and in particular the livestock which he had accumulated which was the chief cause of dispute. A dispute he had with his nephew, Lot. Abram's renewed faith is a direct consequence of his deliverance from Egypt. Verse 5 explains the source of the strife. Lot, who had traveled with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And Lot had prospered along with Abram. As Abram had increased in livestock and increased in wealth, Lot had sort of got an overflow of that as well. He was blessed. 
In fact, it was because of his proximity to his uncle that he had increased in all this way, in this wealth. And so as God had poured out covenant blessing on Abram, some of this overflowed to Lot. These blessings for Lot, though, seem to fade later when he takes up residence away from his uncle and away from the Lord in Sodom. Now at this point, of course, the combined wealth of Abram and Lot could not be supported in one place. They could no longer dwell together. So significant is this that the text actually tells it to us twice. It, it, It notates twice the strife between them. They were not able to dwell together. Their possessions were too great to be together. The vegetation of the land was unable to support the abundance of flocks and herds which these two men had. This one grazing area was not enough. And so there was strife between their herdsmen. In some ways there's great irony here. For it is the great blessing of God which now is causing family strife. But there's not just a small disagreement which two sensible men could work out. The word used here for strife or quarreling in some translations is the same word as used of Israel's complaining against Moses over the need for water. And the complaints show up in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. If you read the Pentateuch, you realize, you know, Israel complained an awful lot. A lot is complaining here. Lot was complaining against Abram. Now this is, if you think about it, this is really ironic. Because Lot had been greatly blessed because of Abram. But now he's complaining against him because, well, there's not, there's not enough room for our, our animals together. So, Abram, you're kind of a problem for me. The tension between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot, though, will be the first of many struggles between their descendants. Uh, the descendants of Israel, the descendants of Lot, will constantly be in opposition to one another. Many problems between them. And disputes of the land and water was regular. And this is probably explained uh, the final phrase of verse 7. says, at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. The land which supposedly could not support Abram and Lot had other competing herdsmen as well. And so this actually enhances Abram's offer later to choose where he will go. So Abram's posture in all of this, as as Lot is complaining against him, was to be generous. Lot was, we might say, greedy. And so not wanting there to be continual discord between relatives, Abram appeals to their family relationship. Look at verse 8. Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Literally in the Hebrew, it's we are brothers. We're brothers. Now remember, God had given the land to who? It It wasn't given to Lot, it was given to Abram. This was to be Abram's land. And yet Abram calls him brother. You see, Abram wasn't concerned about getting his fair share. 
Abraham didn't look at this and say, well, you know, who are you, Lot? This is mine anyway. No. He wasn't seeking to fight for what he thought was his. And make no mistake, he understood well that this land was to be his. Yet, he trusted God to work things out. At this point, his goal was for a peaceful resolution. Imagine life if Christians approach the world this way. How often is it that we fight for what we say are our rights, but we fail to trust God to work things out according to the counsel of His own will? You know, we see this easily with our children, don't we? You know, how often do our children fight over who gets the last piece of cake? Right? Who, gets the, who gets the last cookie? Right? And we say, what are you, what are you kids doing? Right? Fighting over such silly little things. And yet, don't we do the exact same thing? Don't we find ourselves scratching and clawing for what we think is ours? This is rightly mine. Now, I'm not saying that we don't seek to work for justice or truth or equity. Don't hear what I'm not saying. What I am saying is that when things don't go our way, when we don't get what we think is our right, what we need to be is content in the Lord's provision for us. Abram was living in a hostile land with a rival in hostile people. And he recognized the need for peace among family. Well, aren't we living in a hostile world also? In fact, Christians have become really public enemy number one in this land of ours, haven't they? Much ink has been spilled, as it were, on how Christians are racists, women haters, uh, LGBTQ haters, government haters, unpatriotic. You know, this can go on and on and on. If you don't believe me, just do a little reading. <laughs> Perhaps you feel safer here in the Ozarks, but the wider culture has shown itself to hate the Christian faith, and we are becoming less and less tolerated. This is not fear-mongering. All you have to do is read the news, read uh, uh, cultural commentaries, if you will. The world has become increasingly hostile to the faith, but the fact is it always has been. Um, Abram understood this. He understood the need for peace among brothers. The family. In fact, Abram was treating his nephew as an equal. This is what's really interesting. Abram is the superior in this relationship, and yet he says, you're my brother. He doesn't say, you're my nephew. He says, you're my brother. Peace among brothers is to be desired over individual prosperity. This is the part why the Scriptures call us to live at peace, to seek peace, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, to strive for peace, peace among fellow believers. The New Testament is filled with calls for Christians to be at peace with one another. The church of Jesus Christ must live at peace with itself so that she can be united against the hostility of the world. So seeking to live at peace with his nephew and brother in the faith, Abram makes an offer to Lot. Look at verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? 
Look, look at the land, Lot. Look at it. For the sake of ending strife, Abram voluntarily sacrifices his own rights and invites Lot to look at the land with an aim of deciding, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? I'll go the other way. Separate yourself from me. If, if you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right, then I'll go to the left. Lot, where do you want to go? You see, Abram is willing to set aside his own claim for the land for the purpose of being at peace with his brother. To paraphrase John Calvin, if personal ambition and a desire to win is the mother of all contentions, then to walk away from a just claim is the best remedy to end the cause of bitterness. So sometimes the best thing that a Christian can do in order to maintain peace is to walk away from what would otherwise rightly be yours. But, you might say, yeah, but, but that means the other person wins. They win and I lose. Yeah, that's exactly right. But, but that means that... that I'll lose what's rightfully mine. This is mine. Well, that might be the case. This is really an issue of wisdom, isn't it? But let me ask you. What do you love? Do you love what you have? Or do you love your brother or sister in the faith? Do you love what you have? Or do you love your Savior? Abram loved God, and he loved his brother more than he loved the land that rightfully was his. Abram was living by faith, and so he offers Lot a choice. Lot was to choose his portion, either to the right or to the left. He said, Abram said to Lot, you have first choice. I'll take, I'll take whatever's left. Abram would kindly accept Whatever was left. Now consider this for a moment. This is, this, is, this is radical. This is the radical nature of Abram's generous offer and of his faith. One commentator put it this way. The, mag, the magnanimity of the patriarch of the clan and the uncle of the orphan is truly remarkable. The social superior humbles himself before the inferior to preserve peace, thereby proving himself the spiritual a superior. Abraham's faith gave him the freedom to be generous. It really is remarkable. The humility of Abram to do this. To seek peace. And, and really showing spiritual maturity where Lot does not. And he does this because he trusted God. When you trust God, you can be generous. Well, how does Lot choose? What criteria does Lot use to choose? Look at starting verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw. This phrase draws attention to his chosen criteria, doesn't it? He looked with his eyes. He stood at the higher elevation of Bethel and he took a hard long look at the land around him. And what does he see? 
What does he see? He looked to the east and he saw the Jordan Valley, which was well watered. Oh, here was a good land. Here was a land with plenty of water, with plenty of grazing space. Here is the best part of the region. It is like the Garden of the Lord, which is to say, it's like the Garden of Eden. It was like Egypt from where they had just returned. Glorious land. The land which Lot desired is described in idyllic terms, which really helps us to understand his infatuation with it. It was lush. It was beautiful. It was much to be desired. The description of it being like the garden or like Egypt serves as a visual contrast with what's going to come later in its destruction, which Abram will witness from that same perch. Lot's criteria for choosing was sight. He did not inquire into the people of the valley. He was not concerned with, of, of any spiritual dangers which lurked in that place. He saw the best land and he wanted it over any other. But his decision would have serious repercussions for him and for his family. In fact, verse 10 ends with this foreboding parenthetical. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That well-watered plain would not remain an idyllic place, but was to be turned into an ash heap. Thus the reader is alerted to the sad turn of events in the life of Abram's nephew, who only saw that which was appealing to him on the outside, but did not consider the spiritual dangers which lurked within it. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and he departed from Abram. His choice was to his own personal best advantage. He chose the best of the land as he saw it. He chose what he saw with his eyes to be the best. And so there is a distinction made now in terms of where each man is chosen to pitch their tents. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, that promised land from God, and at the altar of God, Abram pitched his tent with the Lord. Lot chose to pitch his tent among the wicked cities of the valley. And so here is the contrast between uncle and nephew. Abram displays great generosity. He allows Lot to choose his portion in in the place where he would encamp. And his own place and portion was with the Lord. Again, Abram is living by faith. Lot chooses according to what he thinks is best, which will ultimately be residing with the wicked. Lot goes on to live physically away from God's promised land. Or at the very least, he's on the the edges of it. He's either outside or right on the edge of God's promised land. There's even a, a geographic picture here of walking with the Lord. There's, there's uh, geographic uh, metaphors used throughout scriptures to describe those who live inside God's kingdom, those who remain faithful to the Lord, and those who live on the periphery, those who live on the edges, outside of the kingdom. Lot desired the well-watered valley for his extensive livestock holdings, but he didn't simply pitch his tent in the valley near evil cities. No, he took up residence in one of those five wicked 
cities. Now, of the five cities of the valley, Sodom was the chief city, and arguably the most vile of them. Verse 13 even says, the men of Sodom were great sinners against the Lord. This is the city that Lot took a residence in. The worst of all of the wicked cities of the valley. Now, of course, this is a historic account, but it is an apt metaphor for the Christian life, isn't it? Sometimes a believer will find themselves on the fringes of the covenant community. And it happens in every church, every community. They don't wish to submit to the ministry of the Word from the elders. They want to go it alone. They want to go without any oversight. They don't want accountability. They want to do as they please. Like Lot, they figure they know better. The danger is that left to ourselves, we may become greatly ensnared in the evil of this world. Fact is, the Christian needs the church. We need one another. You and I need to walk by the Spirit, and we need one another to be held accountable to walking in Christ's light. This is why the church has elders. To watch over our souls, to watch over our life, to watch over our profession of faith, to help guide us on in the truth, that we may understand God's word, that we may grow together in holiness and righteousness. Lot walked away from the protection which had been afforded to him through Abram. He left the household of God. Because Abram was being shepherded by God himself. And so instead of that, Lot goes to the vilest city in the valley. And as we see, the wickedness of Sodom was very great. Well beyond actually the sexual transgressions we know Sodom for. The Sodomites perpetuated evils of all kinds against strangers, widows, and orphans. The very sort of evil which God warns against in the scriptures. Lot set his face towards that place. He pitched his tent away from the promised land and in the land of great evil and wickedness. A place which was to be the recipient of God's judgment. In fact, the city which Lot chose conveys the message of judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah both become proverbial types of evil and divine wrath. Lot had taken up his portion among the most wicked of the land. In this way, Lot had chosen to live the opposite of the blessed man of Psalm 1. Now, someone may ask, well, what about the Christian who goes to wicked places to bring the gospel? Maybe, maybe, maybe Lot went to, to go preach Christ to the Sodomites. Listen. We're not suggesting some kind of Christian separation from the world, like living in Christian ghettos or something, but that, and that would be to miss the point. And the Christian certainly is to live in the world, seeking to bring the truth to bear, but he or she does not live of the world. The Christian doesn't pitch his proverbial tent with the wicked. But also understand this, Lot didn't go to Sodom with any intention of bringing righteousness to that place. Lot wasn't some missionary. He wasn't going to bring the good news of Abraham's God to the Sodomites. He went there because he was attracted to the place and to the things which it offered to him. Because this is the best land. It was well watered. 
It was like the garden of the Lord. Lot was there because he was selfish and he was greedy. Nevertheless, regarding Lot, we need to keep something in balance. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 calls him righteous Lot. He was a believer. Lot was a believer who had been rescued from the distress of the wicked residents of Sodom because his soul had been tormented by their lawless deeds. This is what Peter tells us. Peter says that in this way, Lot is a lot like you and I. And this ought to serve as a great warning for us. Great care should be taken to what you expose your eyes and your ears to in this world. Whether it's television or online, company you keep, for you may find your soul tormented as well. A lot departs from Abraham. But then the Lord invites him to look at the land as well. Lot had, or Abram invited Lot to look at the land. Now here's God. And he says in verse 14, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. In other words, take a survey of the land, Abram. Look in every direction. Where will you pitch your tent? The language that is used here is is legal language of the ancient Near East. God was conveying the promised land to Abram. The legal arrangement was for all the land that the patriarch could see. This is the practice of transfer by sight and intention. The Lord invited Moses to a similar panoramic overview of the land in Deuteronomy chapter 34, where he takes him up to Mount Nebo and shows him all the land, which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. Look at the land, Abraham. Look at all there is. This is being given to you. And this land... All the land, all that Abram could survey was to belong to him and to his offspring after him forever. And those offspring, God continues, will be as the dust of the earth. In other words, if you could count the dust, that's how many offspring you would have. Again, it is God who is doing this. It is God who is going to give these offspring. It is God who is giving this land. And this land will be a permanent possession. It's permanent in a similar way as circumcision was to be a permanent covenant sign. In both cases, forever was not to be understood as perpetually, but as each find their fulfillment in Christ. In Christ, the promises are not abolished, but they're confirmed and expanded. Just as as the covenant sign of circumcision is confirmed and expanded in in the New Testament, in baptism, in the triune name, and extended to the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, and to women along with men, so the land was to be expanded and confirmed in Christ to all the nations, in fact, to the whole earth. The land would certainly belong to the offspring of Abram, because in Christ the whole world belongs to his offspring. And the offspring of Abram were not merely by blood, but by faith. God's people were 
to be not only a particular people of the land of Canaan on this narrow land by the Mediterranean Sea, but to be a people throughout the world, among all the nations. So Abram is reminded once again of the magnitude of God's promises. An immense multitude of people, people, multitudes upon multitudes. His offspring by faith. And so Abram is instructed to survey the land. But not only to see it, but also to walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. He was to go throughout the land, surveying all of the land. It is not said how all of this will take place, as the Canaanites still occupy the land, and Sarai was still barren, and yet, he was to wait on the Lord who would provide and keep his promises. Verse 18. So Abram moved his tent, and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. God makes these promises to Abram, and how does he respond? He responds by moving his tent to the place to worship. He went through all the land, and then settles by the oaks of Mamre. Here Moses, the author, mentions for the first time two important places in patriarchal history. Mamre is a place, but also a person who is associated with that place. The person, Mamre, was an Amorite who sought security in an alliance with Abraham. And he will be blessed through Abraham. Again, this is, it's, it's, it's really interesting how many people who are in proximity to Abraham end up themselves being blessed. It should tell us something about our proximity to Christ and the blessings which come by being part of his people. Abram, in settling by the oaks, again built an altar to the Lord. Just as before, when receiving God's promises, he responds by worship. He worships the Lord for God's goodness to him. And this is really an appropriate way for the scene to end with Abraham worshiping the Lord. Once again, the man of faith goes to worship. And is this not the very place the Christian is to seek as well, to be in worship before our God, for for His covenant blessings to us, His goodness to us. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, this present hostile world has many seeming attractions to us, doesn't it? Isn't there, aren't there a lot of like shiny things to look at? That, ooh, I really want that. Ooh, that's sparkly. I'm really interested in that. So much attracts us. Lot was attracted to the shininess of the well-watered valley. Ooh, I can take care of all my animals here. Don't really care about Abram anymore, because I have all I need. You and I can be attracted to what the world offers as well. We have our own temptations. Each of us have different temptations, but you know what they are. Let me ask you, where will you abide? Where are you going to pitch your proverbial tent, as it were? The Bible tells us that Jesus has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We saw this in Ephesians. You are blessed as you abide in Christ. 
Jesus reminds us in John 15 that we're to abide in Him, and apart from Him we can do nothing. Life is found in Jesus. Blessedness is found in Jesus. You've already been cleansed from sin. You've been redeemed. And we're to abide in newness of life. I think too many Christians forfeit spiritual nourishment because they don't heed the commands of Jesus. They seek their own way. They're greedy for what the world has to offer. They want to live in the world because because it appears like gain, because it appears like blessing, because it seems like, ooh, this looks like great, great, great things. It's okay. And they, they little by little begin to stop walking with the Lord and they begin to walk with the world. So where are you pitching your tent? Are you looking at the world and seeing it as more attractive and more delightful to your eyes? Are you seeking after material blessings, which, by the way, God gives, but then you leave the God who's given it to you? Too many Christians are desperate to be accepted by the world, to have what the world has. Beloved, delight yourself not in the trinkets of this world. Delight yourself in the law of God and in His Word. Desire with your whole heart to walk with Christ. Walk by the Spirit and in the light of worship. Pitch your tent with Christ. For in Him you have been rescued from darkness. Just as we will see later, Lot had to be rescued from his own torment and sin. Jesus Christ, the only mediator, has set you free from the bondage of sin. Don't go back to that. Walk by faith in Him, not by sight. Don't look at the sparkling delights of this world to fulfill the longings of your heart because here's the thing, those, those sparkling delights end up being empty and shallow and meaningless. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, find your hope and find your rest in your Savior, Jesus. Let's pray, pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder to walk with you, to live and abide in you. Often we read the scriptures and we want to see ourselves like the heroes of the scriptures, and yet too often we're really, really more like Lot. We confess, God, that we look at the things of the world and we desire those things over you. Our prayer, O God, is that we would put that to death. But we're also thankful that you have rescued us from bondage to sin. That you have brought us into your kingdom. And though we are like sheep who wander astray, each to his own way, we're grateful that Jesus has taken our iniquity upon himself. And that like the good shepherd of the sheep, we have been brought back into the fold. Help us to heed our shepherd. Help us to worship, for you, God, are good to us. We thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for our salvation in Christ. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.